Satellites. You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new comics on sale April 28th, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Tucker! Look, I gotta tell you something. Mm. I have been spending too much money buying toys lately, (laughs) and I need somebody to slap me upside the head. So I was talking to my friends at Hasbro and I was like, yo, I need a Sugar Man because I don't have a Sugar Man. Sugar Man is one of the Build-A-Figures. And Mm. if anybody doesn't know who Sugar Man is, he's an Age of Apocalypse villain and he's got four arms and he's a giant head and he's got these little legs. Look, I have a thing. I have a type. (laughs) I understand this. So I needed a Sugar Man. And then I'm getting some from Hasbro, but I needed to buy separately a Dark Beast so I bought the Dark Beast because it comes with Sugar Man's mallet. And look, you got to have the mallet. <laughs> and then I started going into, oh, man, they make figures from the 1986 Transformers, the movie animated film that is one of the most formative pieces of entertainment in my life. Well, I need every figure from that. <laughs> oh, and I needed a Jet Jaguar figure from Godzilla. Like, I'm trying to get rid of stuff, but at the same time, it's just coming back in. Tucker, what are you obsessing about lately? Oh, that's a good question. I've been reading Jeff Vandermeer's Area X trilogy, which is a bit of a a unique thing for me because it's scary and I don't like scary things, Mm. but I do like this. I'm the person that like will change the channel if like a trailer for a horror movie comes on. (laughs) It's like, I don't want these images in my head. Yeah. But look, y'all, if you're just joining us, we are here to tell you all about the brand new Marvel Comics app this week. Not about weird stuff going on with us. We're going to tell you about our picks of the week. We got three big picks, and then we're going to give out some awards. What's our award going to be this week? Mm. We're going to call them Pulleys. P-U-L-L-E with a little accent. I like that. We're going to give out Pulleys this week instead of our Pulleys. Very fancy. And then we're going to tell you what else is available. We're going to get into our reading club. And our guest this week is Branson Reese. We're going to be talking about Gambit. And uh, we'll be (laughs) talking all about that a little bit later in the show. But we should start things off with our picks of the week. My first pick of the week is Beta Ray Bill number two. Beta Ray Bill is written and drawn by Daniel Warren Johnson, colors by Mike Spicer, and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. I feel like the first issue was a lot of establishing of where Beta Ray Bill is in his headspace, in his world, in the Marvel Universe. And this issue is just like going full steam ahead and getting bigger and wilder, even though the first issue had him facing a nullified Fin Fang Foom. So that was pretty big. The first page in the issue has Bill playing ping pong against himself. It is... Such a fun visual. He's playing ping pong and even like holding the ping pong paddle upside down. Like, you know, I guess that's like when you're fancy and you know what you're doing. That's what you do. (laughs) Then it opens into this double page cutaway splash of Beta Ray Bill's ship Scuttlebutt. And this is chock full of Easter eggs and little details. You're looking at the ship from the side and it's like cut in half so you can see what's going on. You can see like Bill's path throughout the ship as he's going about trying to figure out, oh, there's someone in the ship. But if you look into the different rooms, there's like an arcade room, there's a weapons room, there's a room that has a little sign that says Marvel Editorial. (laughs) There's like all these little things and it's just so fabulous. But this issue actually starts to build on what Bill is doing. He's, He's basically like, I need the hammer that I've lost. I need 
that because it'll connect me with who I am. It connects me with my identity. It connects me with who I was. So it's a big like mission for Bill to go get this back. He needs to get to Odin. Along the way, he is joined by Scourge. He's joined by Pip the Troll. It's got gnarly, gnarly art. The depiction of Surtur in here. And it's not even like, you don't even see like full-on Surtur most of the time. It's like Surtur in sort of a flashbacky conceptual way is awesome. But my favorite thing in here might be this big panel in which Bill is in the middle of like a bar fight with somebody and he takes one guy and he pulls him in and then he spins him out and he clotheslines him. And as soon as I saw it, I knew exactly what that was. That's a wrestling move perfected (laughs) by Japanese legendary wrestler Okada and it's called the Rainmaker. It's so cool. It is one of the coolest like depictions of a wrestling move in superhero stuff. And we see it a lot. We see it in the movies. We see it in comics. But Daniel is a huge wrestling fan and he puts a lot of love into it. That's just one aspect of why this book is so friggin' great. Uh, I can't recommend this highly enough. My pick this week is Star Wars Darth Vader number 11. It's written by Greg Pockwith, art by Rafaela Yenko, Colors by Niraj Manan and Letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Everything that comes from this story is coming from the heart of the character. It's coming from the conflict at the center of this story. And where we find ourselves specifically with that conflict at the moment is between Darth Vader and the Emperor. Where we landed at the end of the last issue was Darth Vader landing on Exegol, of course, the planet that featured very prominently as a kind of Sith power center in the Rise of Skywalker movie. But a lot of this issue actually is kind of a a big kaiju story. There is some absolutely enormous monster action going on here. Darth Vader in this temple, fighting his way through, looking for something on a journey here. When we get to this sort of thing that I didn't even know was going to be part of the story that I don't want to say, I was so stunned. Me too. How did they keep this a secret? I know. It's crazy. The importance of what this is, of certainly since probably 2012, when it was announced that the new Star Wars trilogy was going to be made, et cetera, et cetera. Star Wars is back. People started talking about this thing. And we're hearing and learning about it now in this issue. But- My last little fine point on this, I love Raphael Ianco. There's this kind of fascinating, really cool visual language that has become well-established in this series where in the midst of this huge panoramic view of something enormous happening, you get a little yellow circle that is not in the world. It's there to highlight Darth Vader's figure amidst this giant scale story. This is just a, a series I adore I think if you zoomed all the way back to Greg on this, you could just see that the guy's putting his heart and soul into this story. It really does come down to that. An amazing writer, and this is an amazing achievement. I, you know, it's one of my favorite Star Wars stories that we've read. It's just enthralling, incredible stuff. Agreed. All right, our third pick of the week is Modoc Head Games number four, because of course it is. This is the last issue of this limited series exploring who and what Modoc is. 
and could possibly be. It is written by Patton Oswalt and Jordan Bloom, the co-showrunners for the upcoming Marvel's MODOK series coming to Hulu. And if you are in certain other regions, it's coming to Star on Disney+. Plus. It is drawn by Scott Hepburn, colors by Carlos Lopez, lettered by VC Travis Lanham. It's fantastic. Look, you guys have heard me geek out about this. I've heard <laughs> from a number of you who picked up the book because I've been so gushing about it. Uh, and we're like, yes, Ryan, you're right. You should always be trusted. Your taste is impeccable. <laughs> Modoc is the greatest character in all of fiction we understand now. This opens up with Modoc being betrayed by his father and then going into like this further existential crisis and figuring out why he's seeing certain things, what's going on. You get to see... Modoc like emotionally brave through different things while still not betraying the character of what he is and who he is. One of the reasons I love Modoc is Modoc can be all the things that we see Modoc be. He can be the the big over the top Jack Kirby villain. He can be a comedic piece. He can be a, a really scary character. He can be anything because he's kind of malleable in that way. And Jordan and Patton talk about it in their little like goodbye page here. And it is Scott Hepburn does some just mind-blowingly beautiful work throughout this issue, taking a character that can be seen as a joke by some and turning him into something scary, into something you feel for, into something you root for throughout the storyline. Like, yes, I am biased on a number of levels for this book, but I truly, truly think this is a fantastic series and a wonderful wrap-up to it. And a, like... It's a wrap-up to this story, but it opens the doors to so much more. It just makes me real happy. Absolutely. Now we are jumping into our plays of the week. And we're going from one Ryan Panagos favorite to another with Black Widow number six. I love this issue for a bunch of different reasons. And it gets my play or my play goes to Raphael de la Torre, who's the guest artist on this book. And I think Raphael just crushes. I mean, Elena Casagrande is the regular artist on the series who, when we read that issue number one, boom, instant favorite. So it's one of those things where it's no small task to jump in as a guest artist. I think this art is incredible. It's beautiful. I think it's certainly aided and just set up for success by the imagination and words of Kelly Thompson. But there are some splashes in here. There's just some really bold choices in general that I just love. Huge shout out right alongside that to one of the best colorists in the biz, Jordi Belair, because the color palette as well on this issue and in this series in general, I think has been so unique, such a specific vision. And I think one of those things that actually feeds into the story itself in a unique way. That says a lot. We're not just looking at the color of a character's hair or the color of the grass or the color of the sky. Somehow the colors over the course of these six issues have become embedded in the very story itself. It's great stuff. And it's another dynamite issue. It's so good. Uh, all right. Another book that is also damn good is Cable Number 10. How blessed are we to have a cable book by Jerry Duggan and Phil Noto? It's unreal. And my play goes to Jerry Duggan for naming two characters referencing the 1997 classic movie film Face Off uh, because he creates two characters in here that their names are the same names as two characters in Face Off. And when I told this to my wife, she was like, yeah, but those are the names of characters in like, I don't know, Greek or Roman 
stuff. And I was <laughs> right, like, right. I, I'm 90% sure Jerry didn't know that. Just like, <laughs> I don't know that. And he named them after the movie because probably the movie named them after that. Nonetheless, <laughs> if Jerry is much smarter than us, which is possible, and he named them after the ancient Greek or Roman or whatever they were, our characters, still, I love it. This book is great. It's young Cable and his dad, Cyclops, going off and fighting people and, and talking about stuff and really like figuring out maybe the mutant world needs an old man Cable, not just Kid Cable. Uh, next up, we have Fantastic Four, number 31. I feel like it's a really great art week. There is some beautiful stuff and honestly, a great color week. This issue, with that being brought to you by R.B. Silva and Jesus Avertov, of course, two of the best around. This is a really great return to form for the Fantastic Four. They have been deeply embroiled, as many residents and denizens of New York City have been with all the action of King and Black. Now they're kind of back off into their own corner of a cosmic adventure of dealing with family issues. Certainly when we talk about Alicia and Ben's adopted kids. And then we also have this great technicolor, beautiful storyline in this issue where Reed and Ben go off into the universe and punch cosmic beings. It's just really, really cool stuff. And in that way, totally, totally in that classic Fantastic Four spirit. Heck yeah. All right, up next is the uh, long-awaited launch of The Marvels, number one. I want to read from writer Kurt Busick's note at the end of the issue about what this series is. He says, our motto for this series is anyone, anywhere, anytime. And we take that seriously. The whole idea of The Marvels is that we get to use the whole Marvel universe, all the characters, all the history, the whole thing. And so it's cool. In any given issue, you can have a whole bunch of different characters coming from all aspects of Marvel history, cosmic, past, present, future, in stories that the idea is that they may never even see each other, but the things that they're doing are all connected to each other. It's a very ambitious book. If anybody's going to be able to do it, it's Kurt Busiek. You know him from landmark runs on Avengers, Avengers Forever, Marvel's. And of course, Astro City, which he has done for a very long time in a kind of almost similarish vein, but it brings in new characters. It brings in uh, established characters such as, you know, you got the Punisher in here. You've got Spider-Man shows up, Vulture. You've got the Avengers and all kinds of characters. And there's a lot going on. I think this first issue is bringing in a lot of ideas and sort of starting the threads. Come in for this, stay for a couple of issues, see what they're doing, see how they're playing with the Marvel Universe. And part of the beauty, I think, is going to be like seeing things you didn't know you loved before and falling in love with them. And uh, I, I'm starting to fall in love with this book, too. Next up, we have Miles Morales, Spider-Man number 25. If you've been paying attention to Marvel Comics business over the last month or so, we've been talking about the Clone Saga on its way to Miles Morales. The rhythm that you find on each of these pages, the feeling you get as Spidey here flips his way across the city, gets further and further embroiled into this Clone Saga story. It's really, really fascinating. I think Saladin is doing a really fascinating thing, kind of isolating Miles in really unique ways, putting him really on the back foot in a bunch of different ways. It's going to be a great test of this character, a character that we've certainly seen go through a lot in these 25 issues. And I think in a lot of ways, we're just getting started. Pelé, though, I'm going to keep it in the art theme for this one. Carmen Carnero, 
of course, one of Marvel's Stormbreakers. When you open up these pages, there is something that feels like Carmen's been doing Spider-Man stories that look like this, that have that shape, that see the, you know, we see the way that Spider-Man moves unlike any other character. It just feels like she's been doing it for decades. There's a lot to love in this story. I think there's a lot to love in this Miles Morales Spider-Man series as a whole. But I feel like in terms of how people are talking about it, the love that it's getting, it's certainly beloved. But I feel like we're only at the beginning. Yeah. I want to throw a play in there for backup story because it's uh, the first Marvel Comics work by Cody Ziglar. And then you got art by Natasha Bustos. And my play goes to them for creating a brand new character for the Marvel Universe, the Bumbler, a (laughs) bee-themed Marvel villain. Not a Nazi bee, thankfully. No Nazis here, uh, but a bee-themed Marvel character. And it's a great story. It's really funny. And I think this is just the tip of the iceberg for what we'll see from Cody. Cosine. Yeah, yeah. All right. We've got uh, New Mutants number 17 out this week. My play goes to the Shadow King for being a creepy lying liar who lies through his lying teeth. I don't trust the Shadow King. He's messing with one of my favorite characters, Wolfsbane in here. And I think I love that about what Vita and Rod and the team are doing here is like, Part of me wants to trust this character who I know has been so terrible for so long. And that's just one thread in this book. We also get to see the return of Jonathan the Wolverine here alongside a scout, a.k.a. Honey Badger, a.k.a. Gabby Kinney, and tons, tons more. Yeah. Uh, Next up, we have Savage Avengers number 20. I want to quote Savage Avengers number 20 in the first page. We have Conan the Barbarian sitting at a bar. He takes a swig of some suds and he slams it down, looks at the bartender and says, what the hell was in this ale? Bartender looks over at him, kind of nonchalant. It's it's left over from Oktoberfest, so it's pumpkin. This is the bar with no name. We got to take what we can get in booze and real estate. And then it's just this amazing patchletcher close-up of Conan as he's kind of looking up underneath his big eyebrows and he just goes, Never serve me gourd ale again. <laughs> it's so great. Cosine, I'm with you, Cosine. Yeah, it sets the tone of this book from page one. It's so great. It's so much fun. I really, really loved it. It speaks to how malleable a storyteller Jerry Duggan is. And why I wanted to highlight that specifically is because I think this is my play is certainly for that first page, but then as well for like how quickly this book can turn on a dime because you turn the pages, you get to the last five pages maybe, and you are in a completely different story in a way that totally upends the reality we've been existing in and brings it back to the mature, wild, big stake story that Jerry has been telling in Savage Avengers. It's really, really great. And it's so many different things at once, all of which I love. Yeah. Uh, We've got the second issue of Silk this week. Tucker and I, we just recorded uh, with writer Shauna McGuire for a future episode of Marvel's Pull List. And within the conversation, we got to talking about artist Takeshi Miyazawa, talking about the fluidity of storytelling. And it's really on display in this issue. There's a really cool sequence where Silk is in a bathhouse of sorts. And it's a double page spread and Silk is going around trying to stop people from fighting. And it's really funny, uh, but it just it's so light and so airy and so full of detail and storytelling. It's tremendous. But my play for this goes to the cat fight 
in here because <laughs> Silk fights a giant cat demon, which is <laughs> a ton of fun. Shout out to Hunky Therapists. Oh, boy. Oh, man, I'm excited for that. <laughs> so good. Uh, all right, next up we have Spider-Man Curse of the Man-Thing number one. This is the latest entry into what has been a really, really fun Curse of the Man-Thing set of stories that we've had. We've had X-Men, we've had Avengers, now we have Spidey. I really love the tonal differences that we get in this story because we have some really great conversation scenes that are just quiet and thoughtful. And then we have some really classic big throwdown fights. I think my pulley for this one goes to Spidey's eyes in this issue are kind of classic, like ultimate Spidey, huge, big bug eyes that I just think are so cool and great. So shout out to the art team on this one and on this whole book. Yeah. All right. US agent number five is out this week. The final issue of this limited series. I'm going to give the play for mini kaiju action here to this issue because there's a big old electricity spewing giant flying blue dragon in here, which is really cool because Christopher Priest, the writer here, ties this dragon to another of my favorite characters of recent memory to American Kaiju, a really great character from, uh, I believe, Al Ewing's new Avengers run, showed up recently in some King and Black stuff. And then you have John Walker, uh, which everybody who's watched Marvel Studios, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier is probably like curious about lots of John Walker stories. This one is a cool one as you see John fighting dragons and fighting other super soldiers and getting mixed up in different things. And whenever I read these issues, I think about our conversation with Priest and his perspective on people and the way he thinks about who people are and what they present and what they say and, and how you judge someone. And it's cool. Totally. All right. We're wrapping it up this week with X-Men Legends number three, a Simonson joint. This is brought to you by Louise Simonson, who writes, and Walter Simonson, who arts. And this issue is in the vein of these X-Men Legends books, filling in the gaps, going back to some classic mutant stories and fleshing out ideas. This issue in particular takes place before X-Factor number 43. That's the classic 1986 X-Factor. I want to give my play for this issue to the way that Walt Simonson draws Apocalypse. It is... I think just the essence of classic Marvel comics in that way. Obviously, look, when we're dealing with Walt and Wheezy, we're dealing with two of the all-time legends of the House of Ideas. And then on top of that, if you're a fan of X-Men history, this is one you have to dive into. It's been really, really fun to dive into these legend stories. I also want to give one quick last shout out to the Bullpen Bulletin that is in a bunch of this week's books. It is this week with Kelly Thompson. I had the great honor of uh, helping edit and put those together. So check that out. Bullpen Bulletins coming to you since 1965. All right, that's what we have for our Palais. That's what we have for new comics hitting shelves this week. Now we're looking over towards the collections shelf and we have four new books on the way there. We have Untold Tales of Spider-Man and Omnibus. We have Immortal Hulk Volume 3 in hardcover. And then we have a Wolverine Epic Collection and the Champions World Collide in trade paperback. And over on Marvel Unlimited, it's a banger of a week. We've got new issues of X-Force and Cable. Black Cat 
Issue three of King in Black, so you can catch up on that. It's the first issue of Maestro War and Pax, so you can read the full first limited series of Maestro and start jumping into this one. And the one I really wanted to point out is Iron Fist, Heart of the Dragon, number one. It's great, written by Larry Hama, but art by David Wachter, who we just announced is doing an Aliens book Mm -hmm. with Benjamin Percy. David is so good, and I want people to check him out before you jump in and be like, where's this guy been? He's been here doing some really great work on Iron (laughs) Fist, so check that out. That's going to be great stuff for you to read in Marvel Unlimited while you're there. You can also read a whole bunch, 17 issues of Gambit comics, put them in your face, and get ready for lots of abs and lots of sexy people in this Gambit run that we're talking about with Branson Reese. Tucker, who's Branson Reese? Branson Reese is a cartoonist, a writer, uh, all around hilarious, super talented guy. He is the quote unquote dungeon master, our host of the Rule Tales of Magic podcast, a great D&D style podcast. He's the writer of the book Hell Was Full. He is behind the webtoon Swan Boy. So many great things. I have been dying to talk to Branson for a really long time. So we now... Jump into what I like to think of as a symposium on Remy LeBeau alongside Branson Reese. Branson Reese, I have been trying for, I think, a period of years now to somehow use my Marvel business card and get to speak to you. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for that. Ha- I love that intro. I've been introed before and it's like, we got a cartoonist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that level of respect, <laughs> that's what I'm I'm looking for. Thank you. Of course. Well, I'm going to go the opposite end and say, how dare you make me read this much Gambit? Full spectrum. <laughs> oh, boy. Full disclosure, I am not a Gambit fan, but I do like this run. I think it's really well told. This is perfect. I'll advise listeners, go on Twitter Search at Branson Reese Gambit, and you will find (laughs) some of the most spectacular Gambit material you'll ever see. And I think, you know, we have an interesting symposium on Gambit here today because Ryan, longtime noted, not a Gambit fan. Branson, just to start things off, I don't know if I would say you're not a Gambit fan as much as maybe you're fascinated by Gambit, like there's a love-hate kind of thing going on. Could you talk about that? Could I ever? Oh, my God. Yeah, dream come true to talk about this. Yeah, I think fascinated is like the right word for it. So (laughs) I don't know. You got to go back pretty far. Like, I remember being a kid and learning about Gambit. And my understanding of Gambit was that he's the cool one or he's like the sexy one in the world of X-Men. And to be like the sexy X-Men is not like... One of them is like a ghost whose skeleton is visible. You know, like there's like a guy named Toad. Like it's not like super <laughs> difficult to be like the sexy X-Men. So like, the, I don't know how high I would say the bar is there. But for me as a kid, I was like, oh, Gambit's the cool hot guy. You know, like when you're a kid and you imagine being a teenager, it's like, that's like what Gambit was like to me. And so then to examine him examine is really a strong word, but like to think about him again later when I was like in my twenties, it was like, Oh, what was this all about? You know? And like, (laughs) part of it too, is that like so much of his identity is being Cajun. Like this like Cajun American identity is so foregrounded with him. My understanding of Gambit when I was a kid was that he was French, just like straight up like Parisian French. Like I did not understand the 
the nuance there. So I don't know. Gambit to me, it's like, there's like six or seven cooks in the kitchen there and none of them really are making the same thing and they just all throw it together into a big bowl and that's Gambit. And when you're a kid, at least when I'm a kid, I'm like thinking pretty uncritically. So I'm just like, yeah, that's Gambit, of course. And it wasn't until I was much older that I was like, wait a second, this guy is weird as hell. <laughs> yeah, that's Gambit. He's just like the world's most preposterous man. And that's how I feel about it. And so I did comics about him. I've like talked about Gambit online at length. Anyway, I think that's more than enough intro. <laughs> no, that's spectacular. Look, uh, for more runway for listeners, I just went and grabbed a Branson tweet on the subject. And Branson says, quoth he, Imagine Gambit running out for a pack of cigarettes and the guy behind the counter won't sell them to him because he's dressed like an absolute (laughs) I think that kind of sums up the brand here of what the deal is with this guy. So look, before we dive into the Gambit series that that we read here, which I think in those opening pages must have been, no pun intended, but just like a cartoonish Gambit example for you to read, Branson. You are the DM, and I know you might use that term a little bit loosely on the Incredibly Rude Tales of Magic podcast. I Thank you. highly recommend it to listeners. It's so, so good. I'm just curious in general where you feel like what genres or media you feel like are kind of your biggest influences in your role in that show and maybe how that I don't know, might bleed over into your cartoon work, anything like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's all like <laughs> it's very little of it has comes from like comics or D&D or like the Tolkien stuff. Like I've seen the Lord of the Rings movies. I read The Hobbit when I was a kid. I don't go much further or deeper into fantasy lore. A big way is like cartoons, like Warner Brothers cartoons. That's probably the first media I saw that just like grabbed me by the shoulders and was like, this is it, kid. This is the rest of your life. Like this tone and like uh, style is going to like get into everything you do. So when I DM, I sort of approach it from that perspective, which is why you're right. I do use the term dungeon master loosely because it's like barely it's D&D in name more than anything else. And I guess some in spirit. I'm sorry. We're talking about Gambit. I'm sorry. I got off. Yeah, on no, that. <laughs> this was interesting for me to pick up again, this run, Gambit from 2012, is written by James Asmus. The main artist was Clay Mann, but there are a bunch of swing artists on the book, uh, Diogenes Nevis and, and more. Dexter Soy comes in. Uh, Leonard Kirk does a bunch of great issues. David Baldion, Pasquale Ferry, some great artists in here. But I remember when this book came up for us to talk about, I remember being Yeah, this is like the sexy Gambit. There's like lots of shirtless Gambit. If they could get away with it, they would be showing his butt like every page. And I think the creative team like leaned into that. Clay does that so well. He draws sexy people in comics really, really well without being like, it's not 90s beefcake sexy. It's more just like the human form is a beautiful thing. I'm going to draw some of that. Enjoy it. So this is how I think of Gambit is like as a comic character, like not like in comics, but like as a comedy character. Like to me, Gambit is funniest and works best when the artist and writer and everyone is like in agreement that like Gambit is maximum sexy, 10 out of 10 sexy. Like that's when he's fun, which is like, that's part of what fascinates me about Gambit is like just insisting that this guy is sexy while I, the reader, am like, why are we doing this? Like, That is sort of like what makes him so funny. 
Yes. Yeah, I agree. And and yeah, they, they play into that a fair bit. But the thing in rereading this, I thought the first 12 issues were really solid as a overarching story and how they pulled back into trying to get to a point that they make with Gambit, which is something that I've been yelled at by multiple Marvel Comics writers being like, no, Gambit is good. Gambit has like character <laughs> growth and all this stuff. I'm like, no, he's just a creep. In my <laughs> head, Gambit's a creep. In a lot of our writers' heads, he's got more nuance. And this was one of the stories, I think, where they do delve into some of that nuance. Part of what's interesting to me about Gambit, too, is like Gambit on the page. Like if you just read the comics and you have no other like life outside of comics and you're just reading what is presenting you on the page. Yeah, Gambit's like a good guy. And I haven't read very many comics, but like from what I picked up, it's like, yeah, Gambit's a good guy. He's like an anti-hero in some ways, but like is mostly good. But where it creeps in and where people are like Gambit's a creep is the world outside of the, of like guys blowing vape smoke in your face outside of a Dunkin' Donuts is like, you meet real life Gambits, you know, like guys who are similar to that, who are real creeps. That's, you know, the character takes on this sort of like metatextual life and like Gambit to me, I don't know if anyone suffers from it worse than Gambit where it's like, these guys, these guys who maybe have never even read a Gambit comic in their life, but just like have the Gambit energy. Ryan, you know, we've spent now over the years a bunch of times uh, touching on Gambit and your distaste for this character. Could you sum it up? Could you sum up what it is? Is it is it kind of loosely the area we've been talking about? Is it something else? Is it, is it down to a story that really turned you off? Where 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 no. where did that start? It's not necessarily a story so much. It's more the vibe that we're talking about, that feeling of who the character is. And maybe maybe a part of it is me like expanding on it that isn't always on the page. But like he's just a, you know, when you're at a party and you you see one of your friends chatting with someone and then the guy like puts his hand on her arm and like they just met and he's just like you know, like, eh, eh, Sherry. He's just like, <laughs> no, guy, that's not appropriate. I, I feel like he, there's a lot of, in a, like, a feeling of inappropriateness that surrounds him. It's like a pig pen cloud around mm. him that is not always happening, but there's just a feeling that I get from the character. And I think, to their credit, writers like James Asmus and Marjorie Liu and Kelly Thompson have done really great stories showing that the character is more than the creepster. They've expanded the character and fleshed him out in more ways than when he was just this new sexy bad boy with a long trench coat in X-Men. And didn't he, I am asking all of this from a place of like profound ignorance. My understanding was that Claremont created Gambit and then like a week later, Claremont was like his run ended. And so we only got a really, really brief little glimpse of like, Claremont Gambit. Yeah, he didn't have a lot of time with them. Um, it's a little bit more than that because, gosh, the the blue and the gold teams and the whole X-Men relaunch, that's like, what, like eight months later? Something like that? Okay, that's some time. Yeah, it's a little bit of time. My understanding of Gambit has always been a little bit that like, oh, of course that happened because all we really got to know from like his creator was this like, he's just a series of ticks at that point. Like, you know, you start zoomed out then you zoom in on the characters and we never really got that chance to zoom in on him so that's like of course that would happen is then like other writers would come in and be like oh he's just a series of ticks and so like it gets a little tougher to like get to that beating heart of the character because 
the person who created him didn't really get the time or chance to get to that. I'm sure I'm being very reductive and like not giving credit to later writers, but that was always, you know, as a dumb guy, that was always sort of my understanding of Gambit was like, oh, of course, like he didn't get like the puppyhood other characters get like time to sort of grow into themselves. That's an interesting angle. And I feel like you're someone who can provide an interesting perspective on those kind of things. Even just what the opposite side of that would be, you know, when creating a character and like when one would know that a thing is fully gestated and maybe can move on to a different creator or something like that. Branson, you're an amazing cartoonist, some of the my favorite oh, stuff. You. And again, I will direct our listeners to go look up Swan Boy, which is oh, thank uh, you. a series that Branson is responsible for. It just hits on such a specific sense of humor that... I dare not even try articulate, but you understand it when you see it. But with something like that, do you have a sense of like, of that element of the creative process when you first had the idea for the character? And then could you describe the process of saying like, here's the idea. And then I hit a point where the character maybe started taking on a life of its own, maybe with fan art where people were sending you stuff where you were started seeing like, oh, I think this has its own momentum now. And I think- it's taking on a life of its own beyond, like you were saying, that kind of early infantile period where it might be harder for people to get it in that way. So Swan Boy, these, those comics, uh, thank you so much for bringing it to Swan Boy. Those comics started as autobiography. I just was sort of like, I just turned 30. I'm feeling stressed about it. So I made a few comics about like a swan, just making fun of my body. It's like, this is what, if I was a cartoon character, I'd be like a swan. I'm just shaped like a stick. And so I, you know, I just did this like swan goes to the gym or this swan calls his mom or whatever. And very quickly, it just sort of started snowballing. And I would like take aspects of myself and like heighten them until it felt like a different enough guy than me that I sort of had leeway to make it different. And now he feels like a different guy than me. Well, because of that, you know, I've had guests come on and like friends who I love, but like, it's so interesting to watch other people take your character and sort of interpret them. Cause sometimes it's like, yes, that's exactly, I never in a million years would have thought to do that. But then other times it's like, oh, you like clutch your heart where it's like, that's not what he would die. It's, it's fine. Or like fan art sometimes will come in. And it's like, that's not what he would, do you think I'm like, that? do you think I'm so angry? And it's like, that's <laughs> probably a lesson for me to be like, yeah, I'm sure you are. If enough people are saying you are <laughs> an angrier guy than you think you are. So, so I feel that way a little bit with like Gambit where it's like, oh no, he didn't, ah, there's something there that he didn't get time to communicate. And now People are getting trapped in the external and they're not like getting to that core that we didn't get a chance to see. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, pr- I'm sure I'm projecting like 90% my own stuff onto what is like maybe 10% there. But that's always been my take as like sort of an outsider looking in on Gambit. My other take on Gambit too was like, this is very armchairy, but just sort of like, oh, I wonder if people would like Gambit more if they introduced him as just a straight up villain. I don't know. I feel like Gambit is one of those guys. Something about Gambit, just like, I think he would work a little better if we weren't told we were rooting for him. As soon as that happens, for me, I get this little like whiff of like, uh uh-uh. If I'm supposed to like this guy, I don't trust him. But if I'm not supposed to like him, possibly, I don't know, maybe. I'm not not here to tell the X-Men how to do their thing, but like, go with me on this like journey of the mind. Like, Possibly there's a world where Gambit shows up as a villain who they have to kill. And then, you know, then there's a twist and then there's a shift. And then there it's like, uh, 
Am I wrong? Didn't Deadpool show up as just like straight up an antagonist at first? Yeah, he was a villain in, in his first appearance. Yeah, I I don't know. I just think if Gambit had been handled in a similar way, we would be, the landscape of Gambit would, I think, be pretty different right now. Yeah, I, I think to that point, he's not far enough. He's got like the mysterious backstory and he's got the red eyes and he's got like yeah. the shading and like all these things, which I think that is part of the charm to a lot of his fans. And if it was just like, oh, and then he threw a card at Rogue and exploded in her face in his first appearance, as opposed to like saving Storm and bringing her back to the X-Men, there'd be a different vibe to it. Because you, yeah. that's that wrestling thing, that great thing of like, you know, they hate you until they love you. And then when they love you, man, did they love you? It's like, you know, friends with a new day and like watching their progression from like they tried to be good and then they were bad because everybody was booing them. And now they are the most beloved it's great. I Look, we might be talking about how great Gambit is in a different world. <laughs> it would be very strange. There are several points I want to touch on here, but when we open up this series, the Gambit from 2012, if you're reading on Marvel Unlimited, boom, page one, Gambit, naked, in the shower, like really sultry shots of him kind of strategically nude and strategically placed behind like picture frames and drying his hair. Yeah, it's like Austin Powers, where it's like, it's like, <laughs> ah, they're moving the plate of bananas. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought that was cool. Like, it's yeah. my feeling. It's like, if you're doing a Gambit comic, do a Gambit. Co- like, yeah. Like, why wouldn't you show Gambit shirt? Like, like, the only way to really mess it up is to, like, be embarrassed by the property and just, like, not... And it's like, well, we're going to shy away from Gambit. It's like, well, then why do Gambit? Like, it's Gambit. Like, have him... Like, I want to see, I, I, I wish they would have gone even further. But like, you know, if you can't do that, absolutely show Gambit's nude torso. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a shot in issue two, which I think is so pure Gambit. And it's that that panel yeah. right there of like the hair in front of his face. And he's just looking and like another big credit for this book. I want to give to Clayton Cowles and Corey Pettit over at VC, the letterers and the editors on this this specific choice to put Gambit's caption boxes in black with white outline and white copy is a good choice. It's like you give him that sense of darkness, a little mysteriousness that he's different from everybody else. I think that is a specific choice that they make and it works well because he's not a white hat and he's Depending on who you are, he's coming across as kind of cool and, and sexy. And then here you get to see him doing spy stuff and and thieving and and you know, or teething, as I should say. Teething. And, <laughs> teething. And getting caught up with like, you know, strange women and and all kinds of wonderful stuff that is exactly what you said, Francis. This is what this gambit book should be. They lean into it in the right way. Buy the ticket, ride the ride. Like, I just, I want to see him be a creep. It's exactly like the black text. It's like, yeah, Gambit should play by his own rules, you know? Like, that's a, (laughs) he's smoldering in like a preposterous way, which is like, (laughs) good. I was curious as well, Branson, when you were flipping through these issues, because you're a visual artist, I was just curious to hear your thoughts on the art in this book. You often do four panel stuff, six panel stuff, eight panel kind of work. You did a project where you did a different cartoon every day for a year. Yeah. It was one of the coolest things to see. Oh God. Thank you. I was just kind of curious what your perspective is on the structure of like a book like this. The artwork 
the panel structure, all of that kind of stuff from an artist's perspective. I was just curious to hear your thoughts. I'm always very impressed with comic art, especially like superhero comic art, stuff like this, that is very like, it didn't make much of an impact on me when I was a kid. It did not really influence my work. I mean, it's like we said, like most of my work is like four panel, like gag comics, like the comics in like Mad Magazine made like a much bigger impact on me growing up. And it just, it was just sort of this like energy of like, oh, that I can do, you know, like as a kid being like, oh, I can do one of those. And I started doing that or like far side stuff. It's like, that's one panel. Like that was like my intro to it. The most like out there stuff I would get into is like the Calvin and Hobbes, like Sunday stuff. Or I'd be like, whoa, holy shit. So like to see superhero comics, I'm always very impressed with like the, I'm sure this will sound so basic, but just like anatomy, like that people can like draw a person in all these different poses and like make it look cool. And I like, the more I read of this, the more I was like, wow, every shot in this like gambit looks cool. Like if you were to turn this into a cartoon or like a a TV show or something, it's like, that's tough to do. It's like, he's hitting that pose, hitting all of these cool poses every single time. The more I read of it, the more I was like, it's like a gag. It's like a this like, wow, in every shot, Gambit is the man. Like, that's really, really hard to do. And so I, you know, as much as this is like, it's not so my speed or it's not something I like gravitate to on my own, but I was happy to do that for this because it's like, I don't know, I was very impressed with it. And it, it's like, you know, for myself, it's like constantly you're being influenced. So it's like, okay, now when I do a gag comic, it's like, I'm going to remember this layout. I'm going to remember like, this like amount of guy to show where it's like you cut the head off at the forehead so that like a strand of hair can be like (laughs) very dramatically swooping down into frame. It's like that stuff is very cool to me. And it's not how I think to lay things out. Personally, I, for me, it's always like joke forward. Like how do I make the joke hit? Like I'll zoom in if it'll help the joke hit, I'll stay zoomed out. If it's like, that is what I've done some thumbs for like animation. It's like, I'll stay on this guy while the other guy's talking because his reaction is actually the funnier thing here. This is not operating on like, what would be funny? It's like, what would be badass? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So something about this was like, it just felt like I was on a, a little bit of a different planet, but I, I liked being there. I don't know. I, I liked this a lot. Yeah, it's interesting. the The first twelve issues, I look at the, that, take that as sort of the core of what it looked like James and company were trying to do, telling the story of this character Joelle, who she has a really cool arc, even though they barely name her in this book. And like, I was looking at a credits page, and they don't say her name, but they say the bad guy's name, who doesn't even show up in that issue, which drove me nuts. But Joelle's really cool, and she and Gambit get in this adventure. And as a video game player, I was reading this now, and parts of this felt like it could have been an Uncharted adventure. And you're finding like almost yeah. a Nathan Drake-ish character here. But there's things that I like here where it goes from, you know, you're reintroduced to Gambit. He gets you know caught up in this thing. He goes stealing. Then he gets in the story with Joelle, and then sort of they split off. Then you get into this really fun side story about Gambit in England and messing with the queen and and dealing with MI13 and Pete Wisdom and Excalibur and all this like fun stuff that I I think really is good. And then it comes back around. It gets back into the Joelle story, which really has, to me, that was the most touching, interesting part of this is what her arc was and why she was involved in this book from the beginning you know, you've got those parts, you've got Rogue coming in, there's interactions with Rogue and Joel and Gambit, mm-hmm. which I absolutely loved. And of course, there's a scene, 
of Gambit waking up naked with Joel in the snow, how they had to keep each other warm <laughs> and Rogue finding that. I was like, yep, he's a creep. He was married off as like a teenager to sort of like a political marriage to appease the Thieves Guild and and the Assassin's Guild, I think. He's, you know, his dad is basically him but older. There's all kinds of like those elements to it. I will say for our listeners who often will will read these books that we talk about, the first 12, highly recommend. The last five are good, but like I think it loses some of its energy. The cards are spent and he's just... It's a little bit of a side story after the fun sort of 12 issues. Well, look, I think this has been one of the most comprehensive looks at Gambit, I'll say it, ever in history. And it does bring me to another question that I was just curious about, because we do we do kind of we, we get there in this emotional way in this run of the story. And Branson... So much of your work is just some of the funniest stuff and most absurd. That's so nice of you to say. Thank you. When it comes to the pathos of like a story like this or a kind of strange out of nowhere emotional gut punch, is that something that interests you? Is that something that you feel the urge to pepper in every now and then where you say with whether it's Swan Boy or just a one-off cartoon that you might be doing something that you know, has the absurdism and the comedy to it, but then out of nowhere might give you some like emotional twinge where you go, oh, wow, I didn't even realize how invested I was in this. And now I'm feeling things that I didn't really anticipate. Is that something that interests you or do you, by the very nature of it, like the kind of off the cuff absurdism kind of, you know, middle finger to it all in that way? What are your thoughts? I mean, I personally am pretty mercenary and like, anarchic with like my sense of humor. it's like I don't I've done gag comics where like the it's like it's almost insidious because like then the gag is that like oh something emotional happened there and it's like but that's being presented as the gag you know it's like it's not to actually make you feel something it's to trick you into feeling something and then it's like you pull back even one more and like and that's the joke and the joke is that you like I got you to care about this thing. I mean, when we do root tales, I, it feels a little bit more sincere in that because it's like, well, there's these characters and we spend so much time with them and it's so silly that like inevitably it's a little easier for something like that to pop up. But in the like dimension of Gambit, I, I think so much of like, stop me if this is like pretentious. I really, really don't mean it to be, but I just think it like so much of like pain and suffering comes from like the gulf between like the perceived self and the actual self. Mm. And with Gambit, the perceived Gambit, you know, this cool guy. And then the actual Gambit of like, yeah, but you get a little, and I really, I don't mean to knock on anyone who just straight up loves Gambit. Like you just, this is your own take. My take on Gambit is like, he's presented as this cool guy. And then I see him and it's like, he's not though. Like the space (laughs) between the two Gambits there is like where he's most interesting. To me, mm-hmm. and I think there is a lot of room for like pathos there. I guess this is my like very long-winded way of getting into like I love that. I, I I like that in things that I consume. I don't like to produce it so much, but I do. You know, if it comes out, it comes out. Like that to me would be the way to do a gambit story with pathos. Would to be sort of like get into that little like no man's land and sort of like root around in there. Yeah, I, that just feels so perfect. Look. Everybody, listeners, go consume some of these things for yourself. Go check out Branson's work. Go buy Hell Was Full, which is your incredible book. Thank you. That I own and I love. And, you know, 
maybe uh, contribute to this Gambit conversation yourself. If you have a convincing argument for either Branson or Ryan about why Gambit is actually awesome, then let them know. Hit them up. I think they'll appreciate it. Yeah. Not just like, yeah, he's so cool. Show us your work. I got to say... If somebody were to just say to me, he's so cool, I just would have to accept that. If it, like, <laughs> and like, hats off to you, more power. There's plenty of stuff I like like that where it's like, why? Come on, don't harsh my vibe, man. Just let me think this thing is cool. Like, I think skateboarding is really cool. You know, it's like, just let me have it. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to take it away from anyone. It just, it ain't for me. But yeah. uh, there's stuff to like, even in Gambit. Thank you, Branson. Thank you. Thanks, Branson. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Branson. I'm a huge fan of that guy. Uh, and I really love that we had the opportunity to throw down on Gambit with him, break down all the unique, specific things that make Gambit Gambit. It was a fascinating look at that guy. It was a lot of fun. It was good. And look, it's a solid run. I still don't love Gambit, but <laughs> I can appreciate a good comic book. That about wraps it up for us. This week, this episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And I don't know that everybody knows this, but Brad, for about a year and a half, would only dress as Gambit morning, noon, night, going out, like going to work and everything like that. And it was only because of the pandemic that he stopped it. So, Brad, someday you'll get back to those Gambit ways. That's what I'm looking forward to most with the pandemic ending in the entire world is seeing Brad in the headband again. Oh, that trench coat. All right. I'm Ryan. I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe. Ma chérie. Oh, mon ami. I'm the king of Don't you know? 